introduce Ron. Yeah, I'll, I'll introduce Ron Dylan and let her introduce. I think is that how we planned it? Yeah, that's fine. Yes. Rondalyn Randolph is the president of the NAACP here in Orangeburg. She is also a minister, uh, a writer, and mother and grandmother and, and all kinds of things. But she's a very powerful woman in this community, and I asked her if she would be willing to facilitate and help put this panel together. We have Demarcus Curry. I, I don't know you that well, Demarcus, so I can't <laughs> say anything about you. Danielle uh, Randolph, Randolph <laughs> Samuel Tandy, and Angela Oliver. And I feel sure that you will have a little more to add to them. Right. And we will bring more chairs up, so we've got plenty of room for all of them. Just everybody smile now. Okay. First, I want to welcome everyone uh, and thank you for coming out for this discussion, uh, which is an important discussion about race in our community. Uh, many times, um, things that are uncomfortable, uh, we don't want to discuss it, and we would rather just sweep things under the rug because everyone is good and nice, and we just want to go on with our day. But with the political climate, with uh, the climate within our country, and things being so divided, uh, if, if you look at the news a lot, and I'm a news buff, I don't know about anybody else, I watch MSNBC, CNN, Fox, it doesn't matter. Uh, just getting the information about the world that is going on around me, it is very important. But if you're looking at what is taking place, you see we are going into a direction where we are becoming more divisive. And if you look at the history of our country, we are the way that we are because we all work together. Whether uh, you were a carpenter, whether you were a teacher, a preacher, politician, we all understood that we either sink or we swim together. So when Aloma had emailed me and called me about this and told me about the book and the idea for the panel discussion, and she asked for me to help in facilitating, I said, hey, I'm right on it because, you know, I think this is something important, and I think that this is something that needs to be discussed. Although we live in a community that uh, does not face the types of challenges that we see taking place around the country, it does not negate the fact that we do have our issues, don't we? Mm. <laughs> we do have our issues. So this is a great way for us to come together and discuss issues uh, concerning relationships between black and white people. <laughs> And my focus, I wanted to, to focus on us having more in common than we don't have in common. And the best way to do that is to just talk about everyday people, everyday lives, doing everyday things, and answering questions that we might not want to ask, but having the opportunity 
through a conversation to be able to make that happen. So the people that we have on this panel are young and old, male, female. <laughs> some are uh, retired, some are still working, some are married, some are divorced, but we're just everyday people. And a big problem that we, that I have seen is that uh, it's like blacks in Owensboro don't exist to a certain degree. It's like we're the invisible population. And we're mainly segregated in certain parts of the city. Uh, although there are some people that live elsewhere, but we're kind of concentrated in certain areas of the town. So it's not a whole lot of interaction. <laughs> so I want each panelist to introduce themselves, although Aloma, you did a wonderful job. <laughs> but I want them to reintroduce themselves, tell a little bit about themselves, and then say why it was important for them to agree to be a part of this panel. I'll start first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, my name is Samuel Tandy. Um, my, my wife is Rosie Tandy. I have two boys, David Travis. Both of them live in Louisville. Uh, and <laughs> both of them live in Louisville, and I feel very safe of them living in Louisville. I don't think anything will happen to them in Louisville. <laughs> uh, and I'll explain that later on. If you ask me, I'll explain that a little bit. Anyway, um, I graduated from that school over there, <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of y'all did too which is good, and Davis County, so okay. <laughs> Apollo, okay. But um, I was a teacher over there for uh, 30 years. Um, I've been retired now about going on eight years. Enjoyed. Um, let, me, let me just give you a little bit more about how I become a teacher. I became a teacher by a man named Mr. Brown. He was the, uh, he was the principal. Now, Mr. Brown was a man that you, you respect him a lot. I mean, you, he, he got your attention. I was going down the hallway one day. Mr. Brown grabbed me. Now, this word I'm going to use, this word he used, but Mr. Brown called everybody that name. Were you black, yellow, green? He called everybody by that name. He said, boy, uh, what are you planning on doing? And I said, Mr. Brown, I said, uh, I'm planning on going to college. He said, you go to college, get your education, come back here. You got a job. And I was scared of Mr. Brown. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> now, I didn't know Mr. Brown, I didn't know Mr. Brown meant what he said. But, but a year before I started, a year before I graduated, I came back to Owensboro. And he was at the, um, he, he was at the, um, what do you call it? Board of Education. Mm -hmm. Then, and uh, I walked in there and spoke to him and say, and I said, Mr. Brown, uh, do you mean what you said when you told me you'll get me a job? I meant what I said. Okay. So I went back to school, got my got my degree, came in the office. Uh, Mr. Brown said, Do you have a degree? I said, Yes, sir. Here it is, right here. He gave me the, uh, gave, he, he took the degree, went down the hall, found his lady, came back and said, you hard. <laughs> That's why I'm here. If it wasn't for Mr. Brown, I would not be sitting here. I'd be sitting in Joliet 
Illinois. Probably halfway dead. I'm serious. I'm serious. But that's that's it right there. Anybody who's next? Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. I'm Angela Oliver, and I'm the features editor at the Messenger Inquirer. I'm also an adjunct instructor at Kentucky Wesleyan, and I advise the Black Student Union there. I'm an Atlanta native. Um, the actual Atlanta, not like the suburbs that everybody moves <laughs> to. But from the west side of Atlanta, um, proud Hilltopper, graduated in 2011. And I just wanted to be here because my experience in Owensboro is, of course, completely different from home growing up. Um, it's a little bit like Bowling Green when I was in school, but sometimes it's challenging. Um, so I just want to be here to kind of help start the conversation and encourage understanding because I think that sometimes we just don't know. So sometimes we need other people to kind of tell us. So I hope that I can do a little bit of that tonight. Hi, my name is Danielle Randolph. I'm actually uh, the daughter of our facilitator and um, I'm 25 years old. I'm a native of Owensboro. Uh, grew up here, graduated from that school right there. Um, I love my community. Uh, my community has molded me into the person I am. I love all people in Owensboro. Um, I currently work at Davis County High School as support staff. I'm in the Kentucky National Guard, been in for six years. I coach track and field at Davis County High School, so meeting people, helping people, mentoring people is uh, is what I do. It's my calling, and that's something I also get from my mother. But um, it was important for me to come here today because someone else couldn't be here. But there's just so much to say and so many people to reach, and I thought this was a great opportunity to give someone uh, and people a different perspective or a different view of how what it's like to live in Owensboro. Thank you, Danielle. You're uh, my name is my name is Demarcus Curry, born and raised right here in Owensboro. Uh, I did not go to Owensboro. I went to Apollo. <laughs> all right, that's all right. E no problems. No problems. <laughs> we uh, still friends. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I have a wife, two boys. I'm a musician at uh, Asbury United Methodist Church. Uh, late here, just got off my job, but got here well, 30 seconds late, but I made it. Yeah. Uh, uh, one reason why I'm here is I love black history. When you think about black history in Owensboro, some people think about the negative things. Uh, one in particular, of course, the last public hanging here in Owensboro. But there's so much good history here. I don't think uh, people, they take it for granted. Uh, for example, uh, I am the great-grandson of Hattie Neblett. And the Neblett Center is still open to this day. Yes. They just celebrated 80 years. Mm -hmm. Can you think of another center that's been open that long? Uh, Moneta J. Sleep, born right here, Orangeburg, Kentucky, yeah. took that picture of Dr. King's funeral. There's so much history here that I don't want to go unnoticed that uh, we can celebrate good. So that's what I focus on a lot in this community is the black history. And I hope uh, the, the comments and the, uh, you know, just the views from us, uh, myself and all of us, is just uh, helpful to let us know that we are also not just here, but we also matter, uh, just as everybody else matters. Thank you so much. Uh, to start things off, I want to, you know, lay the groundwork. Uh, we have it divided up, the 
questions that we're going to be discussing are divided up into five categories of education, workplace, religion, home and upbringing, and community. And under each of these categories, we have specific questions that the panelists will, at, will answer. And after each section, I'm going to open it up for the audience to be able to ask questions about things that you may have always wondered about when it comes to blacks, when it comes to how you know we raise our kids or how we interact with one another. Why is you know Sunday the most segregated time you know in America? I mean, these are the the types of things that uh, people often ask within themselves, but don't uh, verbalize it outside of themselves. So we're going to start with the category of education. And the first question I'm going to ask is, what is the importance of education and how did it impact your life? I'm going to combine those two. Okay. Anybody? I'll go ahead and start with that. Um, I am adamant about education. I love education. I love everything about uh, educating yourself in every aspect of life. And to me, education is important because it's never ending. You're, every day, you should be learning. And if you're not learning every day, you have a problem. Um, you, should learn, you should learn with every conversation, with every sight you see. I mean, with all visual imagery, there's a lesson to learn. And education has impacted my life because it has, uh, it's fulfilled me. Education has been fulfilling because I've learned more about myself about my own history, African-American history, because of education outside of my high school and uh, outside of you know the school system. Because I was willing to learn about myself outside of the school system and open to learn. I've learned a lot about myself and a lot about my community. Anybody else? I think education is important. Uh, education is number one to me. Uh, if you follow me on Facebook, I always post about scholarships. Uh, colleges doing admissions, things like that, because if you don't have it, to me, if you don't have education, you don't have anything. Mm -hmm. Very few people, I'd probably say maybe one, two, maybe three percent can say that they made it in life without their education. Now, if you are one of those people, I would like to see you and know how you made it without <laughs> education. Uh, there's people right now still graduating high school, even have their college degrees, but still struggling, but it's hard. But somewhere down the line, whatever you learned in school, it will pay off. It depends on how much you put in for yourself. If we don't teach these kids right now the importance of education, that's what they're going to do being in those negative mindsets as far as where, they, where they're wondering off to. We have to keep them educated no matter who they are, where they're at. Education truly does pay, and I can witness to that myself. Do you think uh, being a black student when you were in school, uh, do you think that your expectation was uh, that a teacher or administrator set for you was different than your white counterparts? Uh, how, how do you think uh, you were encouraged? I know Mr. Tandy, you gave kind of like your experience uh, in your introduction. Let, let, let me say this. When I was in, um, Dunbar Elementary School. I don't know if you guys, it was the all-black school. Miss um, Baker, she taught the fifth and fourth grade. I was in the fifth grade. Miss Baker walked in there and said, uh, we get new books, y'all. Mm -hmm. 
And I was excited about new books. You know, we were all excited about new books. She handed the books out, and somebody's name was in there. Well, I knew in the fourth grade that wasn't a new book. So, element, um, so uh, from there, I went to Lincoln Elementary School. I just checked myself in, and I got a new book. Nobody's name in it. So I, that told me that, yeah, education is very, very important. So was Lincoln Elementary School a, a mixed school, white No, and black? I was the okay. only black there. I was the first black there. I was the only black there. But I wasn't there as a black person. I was there as a student. Right. And yes, I was called a name, but it wasn't my name. My name is Samuel Tandy. And it didn't bother me. Well, Angela, uh, just to get your you know, insight on this, how do you think the young people, because most young people now, they don't have a clue or know what it's like to be in a segregated school or to know what it's like to be called uh, a name or have hand-me-down books. So if Mr. Tandy is still alive and he experienced uh, that was his experience early on in school. We are not that far removed from desegregation. Do you think that the youth now who haven't been able or had not experienced that or don't know the impact that that has on someone's life, do you think that young people now value, I'm talking about young black people, do you think that they value the opportunity of education that's afforded to them that people Mr. Tandy's age and Miss Betty's age, you know, they didn't have then. Yes, ma'am. I definitely think that because of their age, I'm not sure that it's specifically because they're black um, teenagers or children, but I do think um, just because they're teenagers or children, sometimes they don't care about studying and things like that, like any teen. Mm -hmm. But I do think that what they're missing, or from what I've observed here, or in other places that don't have a higher uh, population of color, or that don't necessarily focus on black history in the curriculum and things like that, mm -hmm. I do think they lose maybe a sense of self, or a sense of awareness of their greatness, or the greatness that they come from. Um, because when I was in elementary and middle school, my schools were right in the West End, so right, you know, on Joseph Laurie Boulevard, or right on uh, Ralph David Abernathy. So Can you streets, explain to them where that is? Oh, how, yes. Yeah, because you're talking about Atlanta. Yes. We're all, in the streets, all the streets are named after civil rights leaders, you know, so okay. we're surrounded by that. Um, Morris Brown College was right um, over the fence of our playground in elementary school. Um, our student teachers were from the black colleges, Morehouse, Spelman. Uh, the Atlanta University colleges, so we were surrounded by it. You know, African dance classes after school, things like that. We always sang, lift every voice and sing at every assembly. So I was shocked when I got here in college and my classmates didn't even know the words to the song. So I definitely think that they miss out on all that black history and maybe that doesn't, you know, they don't get the encouragement because they don't have that. 
And that's, uh, what, that's, look, I just I, that's why I think, I don't know if any school does it, but it would be excellent or great opportunity if, uh, especially high schools, offer that as a course. Mm-hmm. Now, do, I, I haven't, I don't know if they actually do, but I haven't heard it because I wasn't when I was no, in school. Onesboro High School yeah. offers uh, African American history as okay. part of their curriculum now. It's offered, uh, uh, the students have to, you know, sign up for that. It's mm-hmm. not mandatory, but at least it is all. Op- offered but do you think that uh, a person learning about their culture because you know blacks in our country uh, we're the only ones really that were our culture was stripped from us Mm -hmm. and I don't think a lot of people understand that it was stripped from us uh, it was against the law for us to read so we had a lot of oral tradition that was handed down, but throughout the course of time, if that oral tradition was not handed down, it kind of got lost. And we were you know, the only people that had to literally prove that we were people, you know? We had to you know, fight for the fact to be looked upon as a human being. So when you come from that type of uh, beginning and that dehumanization, it's hard to instill the importance of your culture or who you are when your culture is lost. So whatever uh, little bit of culture that we can retain and hold on to, it's important to give that to our kids because it builds character. Do do you guys agree with that or can you comment on that? What about character? I agree with that. Uh, Character in regards to uh, teaching it and instilling it to your kids, it's important. But um, you're also taught character ethics and all those things when you're out in the community because once kids are old enough to learn on their own they're learning from the community and what they see in the community and when you are um, a black child in a community where there's not too many black people not too many black professionals not too many black teachers how can you learn and be impacted by someone who's not like you that was something that i struggled with in school Um, seeing someone and learning from someone who has never experienced some of the same things that I've experienced, it was really hard for me to accept their opinion or their ideas because when I'm at home, I was taught something a little bit different in regards to uh, character and respect. I was taught a lot different from what a lot of my white teachers and administrators were teaching me. They were teaching me great, but they weren't relating to me as a black student and some of the things that I needed to learn. So, uh, yeah. So do y'all think life experience has an impact of a person's perception upon life and choices and how we relate to one another? Definitely it does, definitely mm-hmm. does. Could you expand upon that? Well, let me, let me just, uh, let me say this. <clears throat> My dad died when I was four years old. Um, so, you know, I didn't have a real dad. But I had other dads in my life. And, you know, it, it didn't make no difference. I had black dads 
and I had some white dads. But I knew I had to have a dad. I know that I have to be a dad to my kids. I had two kids, two great kids. I'm still trying to be that dad to my kids because my dad died when I was four years old. Not that my dad couldn't help that. It was his time. Um, but, you know, thank God that I'm still here and I'm still teaching my kids. My kids is one thirty-eight, one is 40, 44, 45. I'm blessed with two good kids. And every man in my life helped me develop those kids. And they developed me. You know, it's saying it take a village to raise a child. Yeah, it does to me. Because it took a village to raise me and my kids. So do you guys think this is the last question about uh, education? And then I'm going to take questions from the audience if there are any. Uh, do you think the importance of the community rallying behind and supporting all of our young people uh, is, in, is important to their development? And I also want to get your perspective on the expectation level of achievement. Do you think that the expectation level that was placed upon you as a black child was the same? Or were you expected to uh, excel to the same degree as your white counterpart? Because studies show that all kids are on the same track when they're in elementary school. But when they hit middle school, when they hit sixth grade, I don't know if it's because of the hormones or you know the social factors, but you start to see these vast differences. You start to see the testing scores for girls go down in certain areas. You start to see testing scores for you know black kids and then it goes across economic levels as well. Uh, sometimes the, the best way to get, you know, an idea behind data and numbers is people's experience. So what has been your experience in regard to expectation? I had um, a great role model. A lot of you probably know, know him as uh, Mr. Chris Hunt. When I was younger, he had a program called Gents, which was uh, almost kind of a young man uh, growing up to be gentlemen. And uh, during those programs, I can't think of any other person besides him that had a major impact on us young men. Yes, some of us had our fathers and you know uh, father figures, but they were not the same as he was. Uh, when, you, when I look back, how much time he spent with us, how much time he took us on trips, uh, how much time he talked to us like our fathers should have, you, you would be surprised how much of an impact he had on a lot of us students. So, uh, I mean, thinking back, thinking back to those, those times, it does take a village. Him being that that uh, that role model, that's what set the uh, blueprint for me. He told me, uh, or he told all of us, as far as what he did, what he went through, he didn't want the same thing with us, so he wanted it to be different. So as soon as he gave us that first step, 
I took it in the, uh, into consideration that I want to achieve something. He set the he set the boundaries, and I wanted to go forward. So having those type of people like him, that's what I think sets the uh, you know sets the blueprint as far as where they want to go. If you have a uh, role model figure, I want to piggyback off of setting the standard. Um, the standards and expectations are set at home first and foremost. And that at home can be in the community and the people who are closest to you. But when it comes to the, an educational setting, the expectations are going to be different depending on who you know and what programs you're associated with. And not all programs are all inclusive because most programs that are prestigious and that uh, give you like the success to college education, to good jobs, most of those programs require you to have references. If you have not networked with the right people in the academic world, then you probably haven't networked right to get into these programs that are going to afford you the same opportunity or give you the same standards as your other classmates. And I'm saying this because um, there were probably a few programs in school that I was involved in because uh, my family supported me to be involved in these programs. Other kids weren't around these programs or weren't uh, as culturally aware of these academic or musical opportunities because at home the standard wasn't set to the same level but it's it's not the kids fault it's not even the parents fault i think it's the fault of the community for not being inclusive and reaching out to people that they don't know because you can easily reach out to a child who's not like your child a child who's not white a child who's not indian a child who's not hispanic and invite them and include them in something that your child is doing because you know it's good for the next child and i think that setting the standard high is it's about networking it's about including all people <laughs> I'm not that loud. Okay. Um, I guess just thinking back to my K through 12 experience, once again with my elementary and middle schools, um, they were probably 98% black and in black neighborhoods. Um, so the expectation was still high there because the teachers were just encouraging. Um, it wasn't the best neighborhood, so they knew the kind of situation that a lot of the students came from and they wanted to help them get out of that. But by the time I got to uh, high school, my high school's in Midtown Atlanta, so it's literally on the part of the street that um, further south on the street is housing projects, and then it's my high school, and then further north is the artsy Mid Midtown Highlands kind of area. So it was a really good mix of students um, and a good experience, but I was in the magnet program, communications magnet. Uh, we had a journalism school in high school, and I could see the difference between the more advanced courses that me and a lot of the other black magnet, magnet students took and a lot of the other black students, if they were not in the magnet program, weren't necessarily challenged to take the AP classes or, um, you know, they kind of just put everybody in this program that was affiliated with Job Corps and they had a co-op, you know, so some students didn't get the same opportunities and I guess I just never noticed it until high school. But I could see a difference in the resources, of course, um, when we would have games at other schools, I was a cheerleader. So when we would travel to certain schools and they had a whole separate practice gym, <laughs> you know, and our gym 
and cafeteria is probably the same the same room in elementary and middle school. So I can see the difference in the resources that were um, distributed to the schools. And other than that, there were some situations in college where I would notice some black friends being approached, and the first thing a person would say is, "Oh, well, what team are you on?" You know, as if they can't be in school unless they're playing. But actively, <laughs> so yeah. Things like that are noticeable. Yeah. I want to say that. Um, the community, the community that we was in, the neighborhood that we was in, was integrated. You know, we didn't, we didn't know it, but it, it was. You know, I remember this white lady coming over and see my mother, my mother going over and see her, and man, you just later on you didn't see things like that. You know, you didn't see black and black and white doing things like that. But mama. Everyone who's a woman, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, and, you know, that, that taught me something, you know. I mean, uh, that, that was very powerful for her to do that, you know, uh, for, for those two women to do things like that. Um, so, I, I, you know, I just want to bring it up that Mama and this woman was, was friends, and they came over and see each other. And, you know, even today, you know, it's my what friends. Year, what year was that? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I guess it's when I was about 10 years old, maybe. You know, I mean, I don't think, you know, Notice he people. Notice the years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you, you think people's not looking at you. You know, you think your kid's not looking at you. Mm -hmm. But it's always somebody mm -hmm. looking at you. Right. You know, and you can make, my mother, I don't think my mother knew she was making Let me just tell you this right here. And I want to get back to my mother. I don't think she knew she was making an impact. But let me just say this. When I was probably about six, seven years old, I was in a store. And they would get it. it was, uh, I think it was on Jackson. Yeah, I know that's Jackson Street. And I think Jackson and, and, and 8th Street. It was a grocery store there. I walked in there as a little boy, I guess about eight, nine years old. Now listen, it's okay. I walked in there. I was getting ready to buy something. But a white person, I couldn't tell you whether it was black, or, I mean, I couldn't tell you whether it was a female or male, came up to the counter. And I stepped back. Mm -hmm. To this day, I've never understood why did I step back? Because it was instilled in you to know your place. I, but you know, like you say, you know, you see things, you yeah. think you don't see anything. Mama right. never did see anything. Now I say mama because my daddy died when I was four years old, so mm -hmm. mama raised me, you know. But I, I never forgotten that. Mm -hmm. But. You know, when my turn come in the line, I don't step back on nobody. My turn is up, my turn is next. I'm, I'm next in line, you know. Mm -hmm. You're next, you behind me, you, you behind me. But, you know, I just wonder, why did I do that? You know? But, that, yeah, I think, you know, you, you, you do things that you're not aware of. And, and, and what my point is this, too, you know. Somebody in here is doing something, you're not aware you're doing it. Yeah. There was a guy, there was a lawyer. I told it, David, you remember I told it. There was a lawyer and there was um, a judge. And I'm saying that the judge was white, the lawyer was black. The lawyer said to the judge, Judge, you put more blacks in, in prison than you are white. He said, no, I'm not. So when they, what, what, what they did, it, the judge and the lawyer said, okay, at the end of the year, we'll get together and see if I did that. What the end of the year came, guess what happened? He was doing it, but he didn't know he was doing it. 
Well, I mean, I'm going to interject right there because I wanted to take uh, questions from, from the audience. But piggybacking off of what you said, uh, during our discussions when we had uh, meetings uh, before the event, uh, we discussed implicit bias and how sometimes people can have uh, it hardwired in their mind and not realize what they're doing is discriminatory. But when you step back and you actually look at what is taking place and you see the data that's been collected over a period of time, it can be proven that you are doing something that is discriminatory. And a lot of times until people do some self-examination and self-searching, a lot of the things that we do unknowingly will continue to be done unknowingly. But we have to begin to start to put forth an effort to address the issues that we're doing and pay attention. Like if you have friends that are saying things to you, well, you know, that's not right. You know, uh, maybe, you know, you are looking at certain individuals a certain way, like the example that Mr. Tandy said, you know, he would not have noticed that that's what he was doing until he was called on it. And sometimes we have to be brave enough to call out our friends because that's what friends do. We want better for each other. And when we want better for each other, it makes our community better, right? Mm -hmm. Does anyone have any questions about, okay. Uh, we'll start from the front. You got a big enough mouth? Okay. All right, Mr. Candy, you were talking about when you were the only, when you were the only African-American student in your class or in your school. And um, I've been the only before. And I was wondering if you ever feel like when you are the only, pressure to represent your entire culture to everybody around you, like you're the representative person. Uh, see, I'm a, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to say, one of those are things that made an impression on me when I was young mm -hmm. is you come into to my house and mm -hmm. my dad fixing your Mercedes. Mm -hmm. And that was like, well, Mr. Tandy was the person I knew that had a Mercedes. So <laughs> that was very cool, but you know the interaction between you and my dad. Yeah. I love, I love watching that. See, that see, we, we didn't know about that, you know, he and I, but we interacted. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a speaking for me. I only can speak for me. I am just, I don't know what it is about me. I'm different, you know, and I know I'm different, but I can't help it. That's me, you know. It, it's me, you know, and. I don't mind being me, because it's me. I, I can't be nobody but me, you know? And um, when I was in the classroom, when I was playing football, when I was teaching, I was me. And I, I didn't feel like that, I can't represent nobody but me. Mm -hmm. And I never, did, I never did have that pressure, because mm -hmm. I could only be me. I can't be everybody else. And I, yeah. I told a book study one time, hey, what I say is what I say. Not what, yeah. I'm not representing other blacks. I don't represent me. Mm 
Yeah. Does anyone else want to speak to feeling like the pressure of representing all black folks is on your shoulder, Uh or what you know it may, (laughs) or what it may feel like? You know, why why do whites? Why do you think whites hold like the only black person that may be in the group to that expectation? um, I'm going to have to agree and disagree with what Mr. Tandy said because when I'm in a setting and I'm the only one, I know i got to represent and defeat stereotypes because when I know I'm the only one in the room, I know there's also other people who are uneducated or may just automatically stereotype me. Uh, Being a black woman in the military, I'm going to tell you right now, our military, um, since the beginning of time, it's a white man's army. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> White men are prestigiously lead our military, and they've done great things in our military. But um, being a black woman, I'm usually the only African American in the room uh, on the leadership board, and not just that, but I'm usually the only woman. You know, so not only am I uh, holding myself to a high standard, so they can understand that not all black people may be a certain way, or you know, not all black women are angry black women or um, just stereotypes that people assume. I'm myself, I am always myself, I'm always professional, and every time I meet people and I'm the only one, I always get questioned about stereotypes. And I know that I've taught someone that day because, I mean, leaving meetings and I'm the only person, someone always stops by and congratulates me or tells me how impressed they were uh, for the way I carried myself or how, impressed they are at the way I articulate things. You don't talk like a normal black person. Oh, you're just so much, uh, you're so nicer than most black women I've met. I see you shaking your head. That's things that we encounter on a daily basis, especially being in the military. Every single time I'm in a meeting or in a setting, someone just compliments me on how how much I smile compared to most black women they meet. It's, it's good because I'm teaching them and it opens up dialogue. Yeah. It gives us a chance to talk about things. But that do you, does it, and I'm going on with questions. I'm sorry, <laughs> y'all. But do you think that you feel pressure yeah. to I represent? I mean, how does it feel to have, to walk in those shoes when you're the only one? You know, because I work in a building for a long time at Davis County High School. I was, except for me and Mr. Flowers, were the only two blacks in the building. I mean, out of all that staff, until, and he just passed away a few years ago of cancer. And now they have uh, another black, uh, black teacher that teaches science there. But a lot of times, you know, being the only one in the building does mean that you have to you have to you have to run it. You have to you know carry yourself in a certain way where it's like no mistakes. You can't be late. You have to be on top of your game. You have to memorize everything, and you have to you know show that you're competent. And you know it's like why do you have to prove that you're competent if you got the job? You must be competent, you know. Yeah. So does anyone else want to speak to that? Um. Yeah, I would say I've definitely been the only one uh, throughout college in a lot of our student publications on the editorial boards. I've been the only one, I'm the only person on the, the only person of color on the actual news staff at work. We do have 
a black woman who works in customer service and a black graphic designer, but that's it. Um, so I don't necessarily feel pressured. Um, I do get asked a lot for different uh, phone numbers or contact information if there's a black event going on in the community and maybe another reporter needs to write about it. And that's fine. Um, I guess as a journalist, it's a part of my mission to make sure that everybody is represented in the paper. So I do um, very intentionally make sure that if I'm at an event and I see people of color, you know, black people, Indian people, Latino people, I'm gonna go interview them, you know? <laughs> and I, you know, make sure that, I just want everybody to be represented. And I feel like it's not necessarily where the consciousness is of a lot, some white people, um, just to, know more about other cultures so that they don't have to depend on the only person that's there from that culture because we you know we know everything about white american culture pretty much <laughs> so you know you should just take it upon yourself to learn more so that you don't have to depend on well why, why do you think we had to learn know about uh, the white culture well we well, already did yeah we already did we have another question it's my understanding that uh, children of color are disproportionately uh, suspended, reprimanded, uh, in trouble in our public schools. And that's according to what I hear from some meetings I've been to true in Owensboro schools and Davis County schools. Do you think that's true? And, and what can we do to, to, help, to help that situation? I know it's true because I have an African-American uh, grandson and he was in an all-white school. He was suspended multiple times. Mm -hmm. And his mom moved six blocks, not in Kentucky, but someplace else, to where he was in an integrated school and he never got suspended. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, that, but that's what anybody wants. But, but I know what happens here too. Yes. Yeah. I, I think... Children of color are just... <coughs> yeah, I, I think that... We, we, we black people that, well, say some white people think that uh, we are the troublemaker. But you know, on news, on news, it seems like the white people always get the good news, and the bad news is about blacks. Well, we just as good as, as, as white people. We, 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 we do good things too, but we don't get credit for it. You know why? Because there's a white people, uh, 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 it's ahead of the organization. It's the one white person behind that film. It's the white person who, uh, um, uh, saying what's going to be on television or not, you know. Uh, I, I wish he would have a black friend. Maybe a black friend can, you know, uh, help him like the, the black uh, lawyer helped the, the white uh, judge. You know? Marcus had wanted to add something to well, that. I can well. give you uh, two examples. The first one, I witnessed it with my own eyes. There was uh, two black students in my school. That, uh, they wasn't really fighting. They were just arguing like face to face. And I think some of the teachers took it as, okay, they're fist fighting. Okay, we got to hurry up and settle this. And to end, uh, make it short, they found out they were suspended for five days. Just pushing. Not fist fighting, just pushing. The very next day, there were two white students fighting. Bloody nose, busted lip, scars. Not suspended, in-house. So immediately, I, there was no question about it. I kind of figure why did they get suspended but they only get in-house. No, no question about that. That's because of the race. 
Uh, then I just uh, seen on the news. Uh, I hope you all witnessed it, but that swimmer, uh, that swimmer that uh, was accused of raping a student, the white swimmer, unconscious. She was unconscious. She was unconscious. Uh, he was sent, uh, sentenced to three months. Three months. There was a black student, college, unconscious woman, raped. He is uh, being uh, served 15 years. Now, That's right. again. That's not right. White student, three months. Black student, 15 years. That's not right. Same case. A woman unconscious, same thing. So why is it the one, the white student gets three months, but you have the black student that gets 15 years? I think there is a tendency uh, over the centuries, uh, just the way that black men are portrayed, or black people in general, there's a tendency to look at a black male as hyper-masculine, aggressive. Um, you know, Tamir Rice was 12 when he got killed right. by the police. And the reports were saying, oh, he looks so much older than his age and this young man, you know, just the way that things are phrased and the way that they're mm -hmm. put out there for people to perceive mm -hmm. cause people to look at us a certain way. And, you know, if a little six-year-old is being a six-year-old in class, you know, the teacher, if they're not culturally aware or just a little bit more um, conscious, they're gonna suspend that student if he's acting up, you know, just because they have that in the back of their mind that he might get too violent. Let me stop this, you know, before it gets started. So, mm -hmm. just the, the perception. Yeah. Any other questions? Lady in the back. It's my impression, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like when there's a problem in the into what I said in the beginning about how blacks in this country, we had to fight to prove by law that we were actual human beings, how we had to move from proving to being human beings to their then being valued as human beings. But you have uh, already established a dehumanizing of the individual. So if we can dehumanize and place a lesser value, then you are a person is predispositioned to think less of that person. So it kind of desensitizes you uh, when you hear of the different sentences like the three months to the 15 years, or it will play into a person's decision, like the young man, the gentleman that was shot in Tulsa, and he had his hands up, the one officer tased, and the other officer automatically fired her weapon. Uh, the other case with the social worker or counselor down in Florida, with the man who said, well, I thought if I laid down and I put my hands up in the air and stayed very still that I would not get shot. But yet and still, he got shot. 
It is this dehumanizing of individuals that can lead a person to justify those types of acts. And um, it's a sad state, you know, but fostering relationships and talking about things like we're doing now makes things better. Because if you can talk about it, then we can start making uh, steps to address the issues. And a lot of people wondering why, you know, uh, the younger generation is, you know, rioting in, in certain areas and, you know, becoming very violent. A lot of people are talking about that. That's because they don't want to be like Mr. Tandy did when he was little and step back because a white person was there. They wanted to be valued and say, it's my turn in line too, mm -hmm. because it's my turn. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we're gonna, are there any other questions about education? Mr. Harvey? I'd, I'd like to bring it back to education. You seem to drift a little yeah, we did drift a little bit. Um, I'm concerned about lowered expectations mm -hmm. academically. Does anybody have any anecdotes or stories about kids who should have really made it because they were smart mm -hmm. and because the teachers thought, the teachers thought that they I got one personal story, and I don't mean to keep talking. <laughs> but my, I taught all my kids before they went to school. Uh, they knew how to read. They knew how to write their name. They knew their address. Uh, my daughter, London, she could read, like, fluently before she went into kindergarten. And she came home crying one day. She had an awesome <coughs> kindergarten teacher after we got to know each other, because she got to know me after this. But, <laughs> Makes but a um, she, um, she came home crying because she wanted to go to computer lab. And I would ask my kids every day, how was your day? And she, I said, well, baby, why, why aren't you going to computer lab? She said, uh, because my, my teacher said I have to know how to read. She said, the other student gets to go. He's the only one in the class that gets to go. I said, well, why aren't you going? You know how to read. She said, my teacher doesn't know. It's October. It is October. I, I filled out the little questionnaire about information about my child before I came into, she started class, and it's October, and my child has been overlooked because you don't even know that she knows how to read. So the services that she could have been afforded, going to computer lab, going to advanced classes, or whatever they had that she could have taken advantage of, she missed out on because she didn't know that she knew how to read. So when I confronted her on it, she said, I just thought, you know, I, I really didn't know. But if I hadn't asked, you know, my child, how was your day? What's going on in your class? I never would have known. But from that point on, I was at the school. I made it a priority. I got on the site-based decision-making council of the school. I was right there, and I made sure that my kids didn't get left out anymore. But how many, how, how many parents have the time to do that if they're working two jobs? You know, if they have, you know, a whole lot of other kids that they have to take care of. Mom, I think that part of the, part of the point of, of your story is that the teacher made assumptions. 
She did. That's right. Because we lived in the projects right. at that time. Everybody makes assumptions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Somehow we have to learn how to test those assumptions mm -hmm. before we apply. Yes. But if that teacher, yeah, yes, be willing if that, to learn. If that teacher, if that teacher was a teacher and look at that student as a student, yeah, that never would have happened. Instead of a black child, for right? She looked at a black kid. She didn't look at a mom. student. Mm -hmm. It's a difference. Mike, I, I don't know if it's a question or not, but let me just say that the information or the the, the topic and the subject that you're saying right now is extremely important. One. Is there a representative from any of the school districts here that are in position to bring this information back to the schools so that they can begin a self-evaluation? And two, I, I'm not familiar with the accreditation process in Kentucky for the schools, but does the accreditation process include an evaluation of things like equality of suspensions <coughs> or grades or Mm -hmm. people in uh, advanced classes and so forth. It does, but it has to be enforced. And there are loopholes around it. Do we have a school district administrator from any of our school districts here tonight? No, but I know that they did get the flyer and information. See, that's the problem right there. Because this panel right here, it's not all important to them, for I'm concerned. Because if it was important, they would have been here. We're going to go on, and I'm going to get your questions in a few minutes, but I wanted to cover some things in the workplace, uh, if mm -hmm. the panel doesn't mind going ahead with, because I want to make sure we cover various topics and not just stay on one thing. Could, could, I, could, could, can I interrupt you? There's a lady in the back. Uh-huh. Yes, ma'am. Decision making. Uh -huh. And I think it's very uh, not important, but it's it's, it's a matter of uh, understanding what we're doing here as fellow citizens to each other. That we have to have some sort of sensitivity, and it's not enough that the teachers and the administrators go ahead and go through that. It has to be Everybody, yeah. Amen to that. Uh huh. Right
Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Well, yeah. That's right. And I think. And I, right. and I and I think that um, you put it so eloquently mm -hmm. because we are a country that is comprised of all people, all faiths, from all walks of life, and we do have to come to a place where we can confront truth mm -hmm. in in the good, the bad, and the ugly of it, because you know some of the things that we'll have to talk about and address. Are, are not going to be comfortable things to talk about. And hearing people honestly speak about how they perceive things to be and their experiences, sometimes it, it is hard to accept. But you said it in a, in a way that is important because you brought it back to humanity. You brought it back to humanity and the value of life, the value of one another. And that is the most important thing in order for us to succeed and really become, and really continue uh, the prosperity that we enjoy here in this country. We have to come together. There's one more question, Lady in the Black with the glasses. Yes. And, um, and punished for speaking your language, you know, all mm -hmm. of those things. Mm -hmm. That's certainly been the Native American experience throughout our country. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure what the point of that is other than that. It's more universal. Yeah. Yes, yes, and it is more universal. One more, go ahead. <laughs> I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, and I happened to be there last weekend at my 60th high school reunion. Well, all right. Congratulations. And, well, I made it back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. The reason uh, this, this whole issue is interesting to me because when I went to high school, I went to uh, a high school with about mm, 1,200 students, not unlike the ones around here. When I went to school, there were, I think, three or four black kids in my class. There might have been a handful, maybe a dozen total in their whole school. Every one of them was a talented kid, way above the average. And I was exposed to, that's what a black person was. I'm serious. There were a lot of Italians. I grew up in a hodgepodge. People came to the United States back in the, in the 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. They came to New York, they went to Hartford, they went to New Jersey, they settled around there. So I went to a high school where there were a whole bunch of Italians, a whole bunch of Polish people, a whole bunch of French people. I was an Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I was one of the few in the whole school. Mm. I went to a school where everybody was together. And uh, uh, Coincidentally, about a, six months, well, last June, I spent two days with one of my, one of my classrooms, my classmates. I was on the swimming team, he was on the swimming team. We hadn't seen each other for 58 years. I spent two days with him. And we talked about this whole issue of <coughs> blacks, Italians, and he, he was Italian. 
And he said, and, and, and we agreed that the blacks in my class were always, always, always respected. And, and I, no one looked down on them. I mean, that was across the board. Because they were very talented, all of them. Very talented. Very talented. <laughs> <laughs> you convinced us they are talented. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then I went to, uh, at any rate, what he said, he ended up going to medical school and becoming a world famous physician. And uh, he said that when he went to school, when he went to medical school, he got sat on because he was a He got prejudiced uh, against him because he was a He said he went for 15, 20 years. And, and he it, it literally is a world famous person. He's written 60, uh, 80 professional journal That goes back to area. Can I make a comment? Well, but the other part of it is that all of the black kids in, in Hartford, when I was going to school, were in the North End. I was in the South. I went, I stayed in the Comfort Inn in Weathersfield because that's where the, the uh, training was going to be. The girl at the desk was probably younger than me, but she was probably younger. <laughs> she was black, I think. I'm not sure. I think black <laughs> Did it make a difference? <laughs> and, and I told her I was going to the school. She said, well, high school. And I told her. And she said, oh, I went to that school. And I said, that's interesting. And so I, I brought my class book down to the show check on it. And she said, were there any black people in the school? 93% of those, that school now is black. Wow. wow. So it's split. I had no idea this was true because yeah. I, had, wow. I never said foot in the school in six years. to our next topic, which is the workplace. And I wanted to ask each of the panelists uh, the qu a question about um, what their work experience has been like. Do, have you guys ever felt like you were discriminated against at work? Or do you want to talk about that? <laughs> I can. Um, 
And if so, how, I mean, how did you know you were being discriminated against? I think there's probably two parts to this. Um, there was a, uh, one of my former employers. Uh, I applied for this job, and I want you to really listen and think about it. I applied for this job at this business seven times. <laughs> and I kept thinking, like, why is it taking me so long to apply to this job? The reason why I was saying that to myself is because some of my classmates went there. I have a high school diploma, college degree, no criminal record, no criminal history, great employer, a great employee, you know, great work ethics. Why is it taking me so many times to go, you know, apply for it, you know, get a job? So finally, I told a person who worked there, you know, I applied, you know, for this business for seven times. Like, what's going on? Like, do they not want me? Is it because of my skin color? Like, what is really going on? So. I finally, after the seventh time, I got the job. So it really took me down to, is it because of my skin color or because of I know somebody who works there? So do you think, because we had this discussion before, do you think that a big issue on why uh, a lot of blacks are not in leadership position or uh, are, are in leadership positions or hold uh, more managerial uh, positions within our area, do you think it's because uh, or even teachers, for that for for that matter, uh, do you think it's because they're blocking out black people? Do you think blacks are not being uh, applying, or do you think that it is because of who you know? I think it's because of who you know. Just my opinion after going through it, plus just recently applying for jobs. I have a book of every job that I applied for this summer. <laughs> a book. And it, yes, I kept because the reason why I did because I wanted to keep track as far as. Like who, like who's actually hiring, who's looking, you know, and I have a list of over a hundred jobs that were applying, you know, hiring, but not one person called, not one job called me back. Wow. Not one. Not one. Not one. So that really got me thinking, is it because of my skin color or is it because of somebody I know? The job that I got was because of somebody, somebody I know. <laughs> so as, now for it to happen twice, Something is really going on. Is it really because of my skin color or is somebody you know? But when you think about it, uh, and you play, think about how people network, you network with people that you know. Mm -hmm. So this may be one of those implicit bias things where because you are networking with people that you know, people that you know look more like you. So therefore, the people that you know, the people that look more like you, will be more apt to have the opportunities that may come your way. It may not necessarily be because you're black, but because you're black, a lot of times you may be left out of the loop. Because remember how we started this conversation off, I said most blacks are concentrated in certain areas here in town. And a lot of times we're looked at as like the invisible population. So if there isn't that connection or that networking uh, to get into jobs or certain positions, we will get left out. Mm -hmm. Has anyone else experienced that? I, uh, I'd like to talk about the culture in regards to uh, the workforce and uh, high school graduates and even local college graduates that are African-American. Um, growing up, when I was younger here in town, it was like uh, you weren't encouraged to work here and stay here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you were encouraged to move away. Opportunity is elsewhere. 
and don't come back. <laughs> and yeah. that, I mean, if that's taught to all African-American kids or most of the population, if you're constantly being told that there's no opportunity here for you, then you're not even going to think to look here. But me, uh, that's when I was younger, in high school, like almost 10 years later. Um, it's, a, it's a totally different uh, perspective, a totally different environment. People are more encouraging, and uh, they really want more African Americans to stay. They really want a younger popula population to stay here. So growing up, and even still, black kids and kids of other minorities are taught to go other to places leave. to leave. There's not people here like you to support you. But if we would encourage all cultures, all people, to find positions that are right for them, because a lot of the times people don't, uh, people know who they want to hire because yeah. they know what's right for these people that they know. Yeah. So if we encourage more people of other minorities, like blacks, Hispanics, Indians, all people to stay here and find the right jobs for them, find the right opportunity here for them, then I think there would be more teachers in the school system that are from this uh, this area, more police officers on the street that are from these neighborhoods. Uh, I mean, there'll be more people in government that were raised in this government. So it's all about encouragement. You know, you got to encourage all people, not just people like you. Yeah. <coughs> else and that's the thing that I I, uh, <coughs> I like about Mr. Brown. He encouraged me to come back here. If it wasn't for Mr. Brown. Because it wasn't <laughs> that many black teachers here in Owensboro, you got, you know. Let's so it wasn't no, what, what, what reason for me to come back here, you know, yeah. other than, and that's, I think that's where I come, I went and asked Mr. Brown, and Mr. Brown, and, you know, uh, do you mean what you say, you know, I mean, I didn't say it that way, but I'm saying, <laughs> you, do you really want me to, I mean, can I really come back here? You really going to give me, a, yeah, I'm going to give you a job. Okay, I, all right. And, and I took him at his word, and it's not too many men, you know, at one time, all you had was a handshake. That was your word, you know. He, that was his word. When he said something, I, well, I didn't mean that. <laughs> but when he, when he said something, you know, I mean, and I, I, from that time on, I always mean what I say. When I say I'm going to do something, when I got that from Mr. Brown, you know, when he said he's going to do something, when I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it, you know. So. Well, I'm going to ask a, another question. Do you think that your race contributes to the types of jobs that you have been offered in this area? Do people try to box you in to a certain type of job? Or do you think that, like what you said, you had a whole book of jobs that were uh, hiring, but you only had two <laughs> to actually call you back? Um, do you think that sometimes you know, being black boxes you into a certain type of job? Anybody? Or have you ever felt that way? I don't think so because I was always taught to, uh, I can do whatever I want to do. <laughs> I can achieve whatever I put my mind to. I've always been taught that, but in trying to achieve those things, I have hit roadblocks because of, uh, because I can't relate to the people who are uh, in that environment, you know, because I haven't networked with certain types of people. It all goes back to who you know, because nowadays, because they're trying to get more diversity in the workplace, in all workplaces, but 
if those workplaces are just hiring just for diversity, then there's an issue. You know, they're not really reaching out to hire people for just their resume and who they are. They're just putting people in positions because of trying to fill slots. Yeah, trying to fill slots. And I see that a lot. I see that a whole lot. Mm. I think my son would have, but I think my son would have been back here. It was a guy named uh, Roy Blanford. I know he's dead. Roy Blanford, he was a lawyer. And uh, I think my son would have been back here, but that's connection. Yeah. He had a connecting. But yeah. it's it not because David want to come back here. It was because of Royal Blanford. Since Royal Blanford died, <laughs> no, he's not coming. He, he went to another place, you know, which was probably the best thing for him. But that's everywhere, though. Connectivity and networking, that's anywhere you go. But the problem with Onsboro is that we are not connecting. The black community is not connecting with the white community. The Hispanic community is not connecting with uh, other people because they feel like they're stuck in their little box. The Burmese community, they're not connecting with other cultures because they don't feel accepted. And now the Ethiopian community, because we have a, a group of yeah. Ethiopians that are here that kind of feels, they feel isolated uh, to some degree. Does anyone from the audience have a question about workplace issues? Gentleman in the back. But now, you know when when <laughs> when, <laughs> when you are connected, that will bring you back here. Yeah. But when you're not connected, there was nobody else there. Roy didn't say, "Hey, I'm going to introduce you to somebody else just in case." You know, he, just he didn't. Him. He didn't. Matter of fact, you know, Roy didn't know. Well, anyway, but uh, you, you you it seems like to me. This is my opinion, all right? Seems like that for blacks and some whites, too, you gotta be connected in order to get in. If yeah. you're not connected, I'm, I, and I, I met some white people, people living next to me, a white woman, she said, I can't, and she was white. I said, well, how come you can't? Well, I don't know. Didn't have no connection. She didn't have the connection. And when it, you know, it's a shame because we leave, we're losing a lot of good people because of that, that connection. Mm -hmm. You know, all the hard people because they qualify for the job, not because of connection. Yeah. But th this is on, this is us. Yeah. Yeah. This is us. Thank you. Yes, Thank yes, you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Anyone else? job. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, it was, this is my first job since I graduated in 2011 and um, I've never felt discriminated against at work. I have wonderful co-workers. Um, there have been a couple of times people from other departments, not our reporters, um, that would touch my hair. You know, I'm just minding my business at the water fountain and I feel these hands in my scalp. <laughs> like, oh, are your braids tight? You know, things like that. Or... Um, on interviews, you know, people have asked me if I stuck my head into a, an electrical socket before oh, I got there. Man. Really? Yeah. There was a time where um, I was interviewing Jeez. someone at Brescia, and we were outside. It was the summertime. It was a pretty sunny day. 
She said, oh, I wish we could interview out here, but you probably feel the heat worse because you're darker, right? Ooh. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, that's my reaction exactly. You know, sometimes it's, it's baffling, so I can't always respond. Um, once again, like Danielle said, I don't want to get too aggressive because I don't want to be the angry black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so there have been a lot of, a lot of experiences like that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, we can be stereotyped, mm-hmm. uh, like what you were saying, the angry black woman or uh, perceived in a certain way uh, if she has braids. You know, that has been an issue. That was an issue in the military uh, with black women and how they do their hair, which is discriminatory because if you can do the job, why should, you know, your hair have anything to do with you doing your job? Yeah, and why should that, you know, be a expectation that they think, you know, uh, it is is bad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense. But that's a difference in culture. Yeah, you know, and um, I think a lot of times. I don't think that they realize, people realize what they're yeah. saying is right. offensive, right. you know, because I've had people <clears throat> make comments about my hair too, and it's like, you know, that that is, it's offensive. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell them, you know, well, you know, that's offensive to me, you know, but I don't, I think they're coming from a place where they just don't know. They just don't know. Harvey, you had a question? It works for a president, right? In Africa, one time in the village where they hadn't seen a white person in so long. Mm-hmm. Some little six year old comes up to me and goes like this. A six year old. I had the same experience here in Owensboro when I started working at the YMCA. Um, It was a whole group of young white kids. I was the only black staff in the school. Uh, And I think we had about 50 some odd kids. Little five-year-old girl sat in my lap. She used to love me. We'd hang out all the time. They didn't know too much about race. But she did the same thing. She turned my hand over, turned it that way, turned it this way, turned it that way. She was like, hmm. You're almost like me, but on this side, you're, you're just too dark. But on this side, you're almost like me. And then just innocently walked away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, that, that was just a, a, a light intro to another thing that I was going to say, which is people don't get hired for jobs for reasons you even don't understand. Mm-hmm. I happened to be at one time a manager of a cement plant on Neville Island in Pittsburgh. And after we hired three or four guys, I said to my staff, okay, the next hire is going to be a minority. Mm-hmm. Oh, that won't work. We tried it before. Mm-hmm. Well, where did you, where did, how did you try it? Oh, I've got a friend who's the chief of police down in Swickley, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Your friend, the chief of police, what kind of people does he know? What kind of people is he going to recommend you? We're going to call the local welding school. Right. And ask them to send half a dozen people up there, and we're all going to interview them on their side. We did that, and for one reason or another, we didn't like a single one of them. There was one young lady who was dressed as though she was going to be a corporate executive secretary, and one of the guys in the plant almost drove forklift off the ramp. You know? <laughs> um, so we, we called up the welding school again and said, listen, the thing that really matters around here is attendance. I don't care if they're the, the top welding student. They don't have to be an ace welder, but they have to have a good record of attendance. Oh, 
Well, I'll pick with the same thing. They send us a whole different bunch. Mm -hmm. And out of that bunch, one young black woman who's looking after her mother who had cancer and had a child of her own, she really needed a job. She looked tough. She was willing to start work as a laborer, which the union required. And she was only going to get to well when the kiln went down and they needed all the welders they could live. We hired her, and she was uh, an excellent employee. Mm -hmm. I don't suppose she ever knew why we hired her. Mm. But I think mm. for us, I think it sometimes, you know, for like the school system or with city and county government, I think that we need to put forth effort to hire more mm -hmm. people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think with the school system, it plays an important role in fostering mm -hmm. uh, young people to be in contact with people that are not like them or to be in contact with people that are like them. Mm -hmm. And then for the city and county government, it's important because Orangeboro has to show a face where we're inclusive of all people. And if we're wanting to attract businesses and companies and want to expand <clears throat> our base in regard to the quality of jobs that we get here, we have to show a face where we're welcoming and it's not so one-sided. Which kind of brings me to the next topic, which is religion. And the differences on how we worship. And we're talking about Christianity, because most of us on the panel, all of us on the panel, right, are Christian. And most people in Orangeboro are. We have an influx of other faiths. We have uh, a mosque here now. Uh, we also have uh, some Buddhists here. Uh, but the majority of the black population are, is Christian. So how has religion played a role uh, in, in your experience here in Orangeboro? Uh, and what are the differences of worship uh, with the with whites and blacks? Because I mean, if we're Christian, we all serve the same God, right? Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. So, what what is the difference? Why is it the most segregated day or time in America? Why is Sunday the most segregated? You, you, I used to play football, and it's always black and white, you know. Um, and we play as a team, you know. But uh, once we got through with football, we went our separate way. About the same thing as religion, you know. We go our separate way. Um, and I, you know, I, I, and I, I think back on it, we knew each other, we helped each other. But when it comes to just us getting together as, uh, you know, going to church or something like that, it just wasn't there. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. We never talked about it. I don't know. I, don't I think know. that church and religion is so segregated <laughs> because it's such a personal experience. And uh, people almost become very selfish when it comes to how they personally feel and what they do in their personal time. So they don't think outside of what they know and who they are. So it's just natural to connect with people that you're like. And uh, that's something that we kind of need to get out of, start connecting with other people and uh, keep church personal, 
but personally get to know other people and the way that they worship. Like, I know for sure, growing up in a black church in uh, Owensboro, we communicated with other black churches. When we got together for afternoon services, it was mostly with uh, other black churches. But I had other friends who worshipped at your larger white churches who had bigger youth groups because the churches were much bigger because the white population's bigger. And that was like my, uh, my chance to personally get to know white kids in a religious setting. And I think here in Owensboro, I feel like uh, the white churches are very, very inviting, but white people don't feel invited into uh, black churches. They don't feel as comfortable in black churches. That's why when I invite my white friends to my black church, oh, it's over there next to Dugan Best. No, my parents uh, don't usually go over <laughs> in that area. Or like, I don't know. You see a lot of black people in white churches and they just feel comfortable because the, the white people are usually the main audience. Even when it comes to journalism, how uh, someone pointed out before, uh, the identifier of your race being black or a Mexican male robbed this person. You never really hear someone saying a white male did this or did that. Uh, those identifiers are show you that white people are the, the main audience. White people need to know what the other people are doing. So when it comes to church, we naturally feel comfortable with the white audience because we're used to white people being the main audience. But when a white person gets into a black church, they're not used to them not being the main audience. So they kind of feel uncomfortable. And with religion being such a, a personal thing, you don't want to feel uncomfortable. Anybody That's why else? it's segregated. Anybody else? Definitely have to acknowledge that everything is segregated because <laughs> of enslavement. Um, Amen. Of mm -hmm. course, Black people couldn't go to the same churches as white uh -huh. people. So, they, you know, even uh, 4th Street Baptist was started as a branch off of 1st Street for black people. Mm -hmm. right. The Catholic church here used to have uh, a stand where you had to sit in the top and you couldn't mm -hmm. come to the bottom. You know, so everything is segregated yeah. very simply because that's the way it's always been mm -hmm. in our country. Um, and I just, like Daniel said. It's just natural to yeah, us. And we need to get out of that. And I think that. I also think there's a disconnect with a lot of churches that tend to be predominantly white um, that have a lot of outreach to Haiti and this is no disrespect to anybody's missions, but there's a disconnect because there are plenty, 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 plenty of black children, Hispanic children. Who need help right here. Who need help too. Yeah. So I think there's, there's just not the consciousness once again for white congregations for the most part, to kind of expand. You know, there, there are examples of that here because they have the Lenten uh, season where they rotate to a oh, lot of yeah. different churches that are of various yeah. races. So there are instances where it happens here, but just not. When you time. said that, it reminded me of the part in uh, the book To Kill a Mockingbird where the ladies got together and they uh, got together for their missions and they sent money to the kids in Africa. But they had so many poor people, you know, or kids that needed help right there in their little town, you know. And it seems like, you know, a lot of times we have that to kill a mockingbird, you know, mindset. You know, we'll adopt kids from Central America. We'll adopt kids mm -hmm. from, you know, China. We'll bring them in. We'll help them. But, you know, just like 
it's a lot of kids here that could really benefit from, you know, it being a village to raise a child, you know, a single mom, uh, you know, that has multiple kids, kids that are in the foster care system or are in the co uh, court system that could need, could use that mentor or need that extra help. But instead of that, I think we have like this, you know, I don't, I, I just don't get that. I think that, uh, I'm sorry, I want to comment on uh, the missions of a lot of churches in our community. It's great and it's beautiful that uh, the churches are reaching out to uh, third world countries and going to areas of the world that are uh, that need this help. Instead of focusing on helping the community and the kids that are already privileged as Americans, grab those kids and bring them on these mission trips. You know, encourage kids who probably can't afford to go to a mission trip yeah. and bring them into these missions. Because I'm gonna tell you right now, we're already privileged being in America. Yeah. So maybe them seeing other kids who don't have the American privilege and inviting other people into these churches, other black kids, or even cooperating with black churches uh, to sponsor, to sponsor some of these mission trips true. because a lot of uh, I don't see mission work like globally in small churches here in Owensboro. That's I the know money my side of it's it. the money side of it. So why not as a large uh, a large church with a huge population reach out to uh, like a more poverty a, a more poverty struck in community church that would love to be involved in something like that. Okay, because I'm take some questions from the audience because we're kind of running down on time. We have uh, two questions up here and then I'll get you, Pastor, okay? My question was, do you think the stereotypes that go along with black people, do you think that plays into why they don't help as far as uh, people <coughs> in black communities? Do you think that just the stereotypes themselves push them away and say, okay, I'm gonna send my money over there, well, where like Danielle said, you know, mm -hmm. they actually need it, where the stereotype is the African-American community or the minority community they abuse so many opportunities, mm -hmm. so they just shy away from it, just put a blind eye to it. I've actually heard people say say that uh, I had a friend that, well, I do have a friend. She adopted a child uh, from Central America, and uh, at the same time, I was keeping foster kids, and um, I asked, I said, why don't you just you know, get into the foster care and, you know, adopt kids that way because there are families of kids, you know, that need the help. And her uh, response to me was, the kids that are here are not appreciative. Mm -hmm. Some of the same Some things that you said, uh, they, they don't want to work, they're too combative, they're, they don't want to listen. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, all the stereotypes that what you were, you know, mentioning, she said that to me. So I know that some people do have that mindset, you know, that, you know, there are kids that here that don't appreciate the opportunities that they have. And speaking of foster care, black teenagers are the ones that usually age out. They hardly ever get adopted because of those stereotypes that people have about mm -hmm. being young and black. So, you know, it, it really affects our community. And then that talks, speaks to the drug epidemic and things of that nature. Uh, there was a question. Not really a question <coughs> so much as an observation that if you're not in contact, if you don't live close to black people or work with them, 
or have some avenue to learn to deal or just find out that y'all are the same. Mm -hmm. um, it's a matter, you can't learn unless you have some opportunity yeah, that's why it's important to bring dialogue like this into the community, into public places like the public library. Maybe even go to parks or something crazy. Like, just, you got to take it to the people. You get what I'm saying? <laughs> and with, like, no one from the school systems being here, you know what? We need to take it to the school systems. Right. Uh, Reverend Westmoreland, he had a question in the back. Go ahead. Oh yeah. yeah, I know. I, you know I'm talking about you. I'm, put, right. I'm pointing to you. I swear I want to say when I came here. Yeah. But <laughs> y'all start talking about religion. I got to <laughs> right. Uh, for y'all, I'm saying the age of love because I don't know the other two families, but I want to speak to what the young lady said. And I'm speaking. I'm a United Methodist minister. I've been on burnout for four years, and I've served in Louisville. I've served around the city, around the state. One thing that I've seen here in Owensboro, and it's, it's, it's not just a racial thing, it's religious cultural thing. This community is, and it branches out to everything else, is extremely fragmented religiously. Mm -hmm. And we don't get along with it. And mm -hmm. we're, not, we're not accepting, we, just within the Christian community, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, we don't work well together. Uh, the, if there are, there's a segment of the Christian community that will not participate in our ministerial association here because we're interfaith. Right. Which is ridiculous. Right. I know that's the way it is. So you made a statement, and I'm, I'm speaking as a pastor here, that one of the reasons we're so segregated on the Sunday morning is because religion is so personal, our faith is so personal. I just, I strongly, 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 strongly disagree with you. Mm -hmm. Faith is personal, it is part of it, but faith in every community of faith, whatever, whether it's Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, whatever, cannot happen unless we have community. It is not personal, right. it is corporate. Mm -hmm. It is a full community, and that's part of the problem, is the church has led the way in the United States in racism. Well, we've done it not just in the United States, we've done it all over the world for yeah. our history, we've got some really dark, ugly marks. Mm -hmm. and in the 19th century during slavery, we've got some Real bad marks. Yeah. yeah. And I think this, this kind of discussion is good, but if we look around the room here, we're not the people who need to be here. Thank exactly. you. you and I think we're all thinking that. We are all thinking that. Yeah. We're trying associations, trying to get some things going into the community. Uh huh. Uh,
Where are you meeting at? Islamic Center. Islamic Center. Center. It's off of 54. Oh, 54. But that evening, no, it's a Friday evening, Friday evening, November the 4th, we have put together a prayer meeting. There's going to be an interfaith prayer meeting, which we're going to be planning this week uh, and working on down Smothers Park at 530. It's going to be a candlelight time where we're going to have prayers from different faiths, different groups. But our, the way we come into this is to say we need to deal with the hate in our community. Mm -hmm. Right. So we need to title it. Building Bridges, mm -hmm. who is our nation. And we want everybody to come and be a part of it. Because faith is not faith is personal to Yes. And we can't do it without each other. Mm -hmm. Right. Amen. Yeah. And then I will add this one thing I'm going to sit down and Y'all talk about, I, as a Christian, we look at the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, there's going to be, I, I've had people tell me that they're going to be in heaven without knowing. I said, are you going, are you going to be there? Yeah, I don't think I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> so religious, so, so they're so religious you can't stand to be around. Um, my church, I've served pastor with one and I met this church. Greatest church in the world, probably. No. because we really want to cover some of the other questions that we have prepared. Uh, but we have been kind of addressing it. Part
part by part. And although those specific instances have happened in other places, a lot of people here have been impacted, more specifically a lot of young black men uh, have expressed, or mothers or fathers of young black men have expressed concern for their safety. And we've talked about implicit bias and, and, and things along those lines, which plays into the things that have been happening. But how it has impacted us here is that it has made a lot of young men uh, more uncomfortable. Uh, it has made them more uh, alert uh, to their surroundings. Um, and I have also spoken with Chief Elam, and I know that they have gone through training. They have a national program called COPS where they encourage uh, police departments to foster community relationships and building relationships. And our police department has been ahead of the game in that. But it does not take away that there have been incidences where, you know, people, young black men have been addressed in disrespectful manners by some officers. That's not the whole force but it is certain ones that may have reoccurring complaints. And another thing I can say about our police department is that we have a formal complaint process that you can file, and it goes before the city council and a review board. So if you do have the issue that's taking place, it will be addressed and you will be contacted <coughs> as to how it was addressed. But it doesn't take away from the fact that a lot of young black men in our community feel like sometimes they, they are stereotyped and that they're targeted. I just want to real quick go back to religion. Uh, I've actually been to a white church. I went to an Orangeboro Christian church one Sunday morning. And I really liked it. You know, they did a praise and worship preacher, preaching, uh, he preached a message. Then I went to my church and I found it kind of interesting because we did the same exact thing. Choir sung, preacher preached. And what really got me was when the preacher at Owensboro Christian, he preached from the same scripture that my pastor preached from. So it got me the question, what was really different? The only different thing is the name of the church. Yeah. We serve the same God. So regardless of, I'm talking about Christianity, regardless of what church you go to, I think that is something good. Uh, we just separated ourselves as far as the different denominations and churches. As long as you serve the same guy, then he will help us as far as whatever our problems is, as far as going into the churches. But I that was I thought that was that was no, nobody but God <laughs> for the preacher to preach the same scripture, go to my church, same exact scripture, mm -hmm. praise God differently. We still serve the, serve the same guy. So that's the only thing as far as that's different is the name of the church. Mr. That I think Mr. Tandy has somewhat of a different experience because he is. Are you the only white person, I mean, black person at your church? No, there's a few more once in a while. Okay. <laughs> once in a while. He goes to, he's a black man that goes to a predominantly white church. So his experience on how he worship now is different than ours because we go to predominantly black churches. Could you talk about your experience? Yes, I so can. Um, Of course, you know, let me start at the beginning. Um, I was at this um, 
<laughs> I was at this um, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, celebration, and uh, this man named uh, Jonathan Carroll, he uh, was a keynote speaker, and uh, he spoke very well, and he said things that I didn't know Dr. King had done, you know, and he pressed the heck out of me, and I was saying a lot of amens too, and uh, after I got after he got through, I went up to him and uh, asked him what did he do, you know, what 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 business was he in? He said I'm a preacher. I said no, you're not. He said yes, I am. I'm a preacher. Now where you preach at? And he told me, you know, not I, that church, uh, First Presbyterian. I remember riding by there on my bicycle, you know, looking at the church. I won't be going there. Mm -mm, no, I won't be going there. But uh, I told him, and I don't know why I said it. It just came out, and you know, I think God put it in my mouth. And, boom, and I said, yeah, I'm gonna come to your church. And after I walked away, I said, Why did I say that? <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. And I and I thought about, you know, you you shouldn't lie, you know. You, 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 you go to hell of a line, you know. So I went there, you know, and uh, um, I was greeted very well. And I kept coming back, kept coming back, and I became a member, and I'm still there. But, you know, and I, I tell some members, you know, I said, to, man, God sent me here. And, I, you know, I think they understand. I think they do understand that, that God, you know, God works in a mysterious way. Yes, he does. And, uh, you know, my, my wife goes to 10th Street Baptist Church because my father was... Uh, a pastor there, and for me to go leave that church and go to the First Presbyterian, it has to be God's work. You know, it can't be me. It's got to be Him. You know, and I'm still there, and you know, I'll probably be there till He say move, <laughs> one way or the other. <laughs> you know? Which leads, which leads to my next question: What part can Christianity play? in restoring race relations within our community, making us more cohesive. How, I mean, uh, Pastor back there, had uh, Jones had said how Christianity in the past had been used in a negative way uh, uh, amongst minority populations of the world. So now we are in a new age and we are more aware and more educated about you know history and, and also religion. How can Christianity be used in a positive way to restore uh, relationships between uh, black and white people? The two greatest commandments, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you Amen. do love God and hate your neighbor, the Bible mm -hmm. says that you are a liar and the truth is not in you. How can you love God who, who you have never, never seen, seen. Right. but hate your enemy, the, hate your neighbor yes. that you see every day? Amen. Yeah. So if you cannot do those things, then the race relations in our community will never be restored. Yeah, I think Christianity as a whole, uh, or religion as a whole, your uh, people make up the churches, the churches make up the communities, and I think all of our communities, every side of town, we all need to connect and continue to reconnect over and over. And I think that genuine love that we share within our religion, I think that's what's going to help restore uh, race relations because we'll come together more. We'll be able to relate to each other more and understand different cultures because we all have like that same foundation, that strong love for God, that strong Christian foundation. So I think with that, we can all just come together one event at a time or one Sunday at a time and start to restore the, those race relations and really get to know each other. Anyone else? Well, I, you know, I, I think I wish that uh, the preachers 
would get together with other churches mm -hmm. and worship one Sunday with this church, yep. one Sunday this church, and yep. then, you know, they could, but it, it, it you know, I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to say too much, but, you know, I just think, <laughs> I just think, you know, that preachers can really be instrumental. Yes, yes. you know, yeah. can mm -hmm. really do something that nobody, a lot of, a lot of us can't do. Because yeah. they got our attention, you know, but they have it. My pastor, he, she preached on, you know, black and white, getting together and, and things. And I, I appreciate that. And I even tell her that, you know, but and it's not enough of it. It's, yeah. it's not enough preachers preaching like that. The leaders you know? in they, our they, churches right. need to come together they do. They do. and recognize the race issues in our community. And then the preachers can preach that to their audience because all preachers preach different depending mm -hmm. on who their audience is yeah. and how you can relate to those people. Well, you so. guys are talking about preachers like I'm not a preacher. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we're, 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 we're in the discussion panel. about preachers like I'm not See, a preacher. But I, I mean, I just want to say that, you know, that goes back to people's personal experiences the stereotypes they may hold, mm -hmm. although we are the vessels that God used, we are still vessels, and what God gives us is filtered through our life experiences. And sometimes the things that we have been discussing as far as implicit bias and stereotypes and traditions and what we've been taught, you know, displays itself on Sunday morning. You know, we try our best and uh, to allow for the Holy Spirit to lead us to get past ourselves in those things, but it has to filter through our humanness, True. you know? And, and, and filtering through our humans, humanness is part of how we are able to connect to people. That's how Jesus was able co to connect. He was God, but he had to come down in human form to connect and experience everything that we did so that there is no excuse that you can't overcome. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's the same analogy that preachers and teachers every Sunday morning have to get up and filter that thing through, fighting through with the Holy Spirit, that humanness, the struggles that we have to face, the family problems that we have, everything that we have to deal with and still stand for truth and still preach the gospel and stand for what's right. And a lot of times we don't want to push past ourselves because we got a whole lot of stuff we're dealing with anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, so now we have to compile it with this race stuff. I'm trying to get that and preach every Sunday morning and teach on Wednesday nights. Now, if you want to come fellowship, you can come fellowship. I mean, that's the mindset, you know, that a lot of people have. It's just another thing. But that's part of the struggle. That's part of the Christian fight because that's part of a strategic attack that the enemy has to, to dismantle communities and families. But we have to be on the forefront. And, you know, and I'm not trying to make excuses. It, it just is what it is, you know. And a lot of people don't understand you know, what everyday people have to fight through just to love, just to be, just to live, and, and then to fight for what's right, you know. It, it's going to take all of us doing this together, you know. Leadership, yes, 
but leadership is as good as their followers. You can't preach to an empty church. It takes the people to, to take a stand with you. So we all have to develop a backbone and, and learn to take a stand and stand together. Did you have something yeah. you want to add? As far as Christianity and, and religion, I am, I am a pastor, I'm a preacher. But there's a vast difference in religion and Christianity. Huge, <laughs> huge difference. In order to get to the Christian part of loving and living and accepting, you gotta get beyond your religion. Right. Okay? When you're taught that your religion outraged your Christianity, you've lost half the battle. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you're Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, whatever you want to be. But if that's more important to you than who you worship with than who you worship, that's where our problem is. Mm -hmm. We can't love beyond who we think we are. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to love you because you're Methodist and I'm Baptist. <laughs> we can't worship because of the titles we carry. We are the human race. Paul said that he taught us we were all made of one blood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One blood. Mm -hmm. When we get beyond our religion, we can learn to love as Christians. Mm -hmm. Right. But I don't want you in my neighborhood because you're not like me. Mm -hmm. And my religion says I don't have to accept you, but mm -hmm. Christianity says I have to love you. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, if you can't accept me, how are you going to love me? Right. Amen. We got to get beyond who we are and what we right. think we are, and start living the lie that we tell on Sunday. We profess to be Christians, yep. mm -hmm. but my religion's a whole lot more. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this kind of leads me to my yeah. Mm -hmm. This kind of leads to my next question about um, we're going to go on into upbringing, and do you think that there are things classified within the black culture? that is considered culture, but is really not part of our culture? Can you think of some things that people just attribute to our culture? And when you listen to people say that, it's like, that's not our culture. You know, that's bad behavior. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't want to get off topic with you uh, referring to this, but uh, you know, lately on the news, we've been hearing about the Black Lives Matter thing. And some places that where they do those protests, it's turned out a little violent. You know, people being shot, arrested, and you know, hurt. Uh, but when we did the march here, Black Lives Matter, because I was one who led the march. No violence, no fights, no shootings. All we wanted was to let us let everybody know that we matter the same as everybody else. So you can't judge us because of what you see other people doing as well. Because that's 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 almost saying like. Okay, well, since what they doing, then all black people doing that. No, that's that's not the case. You know, you can't you can't classify you know all black the same culture just because you, what you see other people doing. That's yeah, you can't you can't do it that way. So, or some people saying that you know because you're black you have to be loud, or because you're black you're gonna be a look you're gonna be more violent. Mm -hmm. You know, some people stereotype that or put that as part of our culture. And it's not really culture, it's like bad behavior, like I said, you know. But there are other things that, you know, can be categorized that way. Has anyone ever had that type of experience where, you know, people say, well, you know, they're just being black. If yeah. so, how does that make you feel? Um, mm -hmm. I'm 
I'll bring up an experience in a school setting, a biracial kid. He, uh, he was with his white friends in the school I work at. It's predominantly white. There's only a few uh, African-American kids. You got a small population of uh, Hispanics, Burmese, Asians, but the majority of the school are white kids. And uh, this mixed kid was with his friends. Most of them were his white friends. And he uh, did something, made a loud noise, uh, knocked over a trash can. And his friends were like, man, why'd you do that? He's like, oh, that's the black in me coming out. That's the black side of me. You know, so it's like um, a lot of kids who, ha who live in a home or live mostly around uh, white people, but they have, uh, they have roots in other uh, races that they don't really know about, mm -hmm. they stereotype themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they think that these behaviors or actions that they do come from that race because they don't really know that race or that culture. They just feed off of what their white family has told them. Um, and there's another situation where uh, a biracial young girl, I was at the park and I just got done running because my favorite route is running from English Park to Smothers Park. And I'll stop at the park and I'll get some water and some kids from the white camp were there. And I just walked up, I was waiting for the kids to drink water. There was a uh, mixed child in front and there was a white girl in the back and the white girl was looking at me, she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm just waiting to get a drink. And she asked her friend, do you know this lady? And uh, she was like, no, I don't know her. And the white friend said, oh, I thought that was your mom. And she looked at me and she was like, oh, my mom's white. And she just walked off as if she was insulted that her white friend would assume, would assume that her mom is black. So um, the culture of being black is almost looked at as being lesser. And th these are little kids who view black people as being lesser and most of them were mixed kids who aren't taught that they are beautiful too but they're that, in place that they've got it's kind of placed in categories <coughs> within our society and how yeah. kids relate to one another and which goes goes to another thing that i wanted to talk about which is black folks i, I always say i'm black i do and, but black folks have said, have gone through a transition of names of what we call ourselves. Uh, we've been black, we've been African-American, we've been Negro, we've been colored, we've been Afro-American. So how do you identify yourself? So to put, put all of that, <laughs> I, I, that's why I always say that I'm, I'm black, I, I'm just, who I am within my American experience of being black. And if you look at most blacks, we have a combination of all kinds of stuff in us. Mm -hmm. And we are all different hues. And a lot of times, uh, a lot of whites don't understand that the same gene that gives you the color of your skin is the same gene that gives you your eye color or your hair color and how blacks have different variations of our shades of skin, you can kind of compare that to white folks having different shades of their hair color or their eye color. It's <coughs> all the same gene that causes those, those variations. So when we take that into context of how we identify ourselves, race as a class was put in place based upon our skin color. But race 
It's just something that is created. It is a creative construct because we are all a part of the human race. Mm -hmm. But we have kids who understand this hierarchy of how things go <laughs> that will fight over, you know, or be insulted like that one kid was over if being associated with being black. And within the black culture, we have variations of how we discriminate against one another based upon the lightness or the darkness of our skin or the texture of our hair. Because that is how people have tried to integrate into white culture. Because white culture is the dominant culture. But we have people that are trying to change the mindset of that. That's why it's, you know, uh, it's so offensive when people play in our hair. Because hair was one of the things of how we were classified as far as rankings of how close you were to being white. But why can't we just be accepted for who we are? Kinky hair. Braided hair, straight hair. I don't have any hair. <laughs> <laughs> you had a question. Talking um, <clears throat> libraries, yes. public and schools mm -hmm. have very few books that have black children. Right. And how are our white kids going to be able to see? Mm -hmm. That's another way of education. Mm -hmm. And the black children as well. Mm -hmm. That's for them to be able to see it. Mm -hmm. Everybody ought to be making a concerted effort who is white to give their children and grandchildren black baby dolls, Asian baby dolls, Indian baby dolls, Indians, Burmese. There's my mother in law about had a heart attack when I gave my child a black. And she was raised in the, in Kentucky, and her her uh, contact was they were her uh, cleaners, housekeepers, or they did odd jobs in the yard, hired people. So until we, as a, I don't know, all of us have to be aware, but to bring the books buy those books and show them to the kids, read them to the kids, then we're, we're what are we? Well, how, how do the panelists uh, view themselves or categorize yourself? Or is that important to you? I'm black and proud. <laughs> <laughs> but I also, I, I use Negro when I'm talking to some of my friends, you know, when, not the N word, but the actual word Negro. When I'm talking to some of my friends, um, and I like African American because I do like that connection to Africa and all the history and the heritage that's there. You know that we didn't get a chance to appreciate because it was taken from us. So I like it in that regard. And I think Afro American just came about in the '70s. Yeah, when people because were wearing of that Afros. hairstyle. So yeah. I don't know if anybody uses that anymore. <laughs> Anyone else? Want to comment? To uh, you that? know, I, I classify it all. As long as you respect the name, you know, just, just don't yell it out like it's, 
if it's not if it's not done in a respectful way, yeah, yeah, you might get my attention, you know, in a, in a negative way, you know. But I, you know, I could be either one of them. Most, I guess, I'm black, but uh, you know, as long as uh, you respect the name, that's all. So most of us up here identify with being black. Yeah. Yeah, we're saying that they're black. Uh, he had a question. Did you have a question? Then I get you. I didn't have so much of a question, but uh, but a statement. My girlfriend, she's white, so by default, my child is biracial. But for me, I raise my child. I tell her that she is black because once she goes out to the public eye, she's not seen as biracial. If anything were to happen, they will see that child with pigmentation of her skin as a black child. So for me, I feel like it's very important to raise my child to let her know who she is and what she will be perceived as. Now, it's not like uh, one woman back in the time, her, uh, her granddaughter was getting a dog. I make sure to give my child a, a dog that looks like a mom. She just had birthday. She got a child that looks like a mother. She got a child that looks like mama, you know. And she plays with both of them. At the end of the day, she knows who she is. She goes to uh, her mother's family's house more than she goes to her mom's house, truthfully. But the love never changes. And that all starts because the household. It's all about the upbringing. We have to teach our kids to really know what, who they are, where they are, and, and accept who they are. That's right. <laughs> I feel like that's the most important part of pushing the envelope and making sure everybody's, like, you know, like Daniel said, when the young girl, she almost felt offended when the girl thought that her mother was black. It's, it starts at home. Me too. Now, that child, I don't know that child, I've never met that child. Mm -hmm. I just know the story. But if that child, all she lives with is a mother who may be biracial, or, she, or white, and all she is around is her mother's family. She won't know anything about black people besides mm -hmm. what she sees, the kids she interacts with, and what she's told. Now, if it starts at home, and she's told, you know, you have black kids. All black people are what you see on TV. That's right. This is who you are, and this is a part of you. Mm -hmm. And it starts at home and teach them at home because, right. like we've all said, you will not see it in school like you should. You know, I went to the school right across the street, and it's, it's a handful of times where you actually see a, a black person in a in a position of power that I can actually look up to and like, man, right. that's somebody that can be me, right? Yeah. It's me. It's right. Yeah. And it's hard. Right. It's hard for people, younger people, to to really see themselves and just to piggyback on that Very important. throughout the history of the black experience in america biracial people were often most times considered to be black people there was never this category of biracial or other but it was you're black i worked with a, a girl who uh, was from ohio and in the town that she lived in the way to tell the differences between black and white was by the last name some people to look at them they did not even know that they were black people <laughs> but because everybody in town knew who their last name what their last name was they knew this whole family was black but throughout time it i mean in the history of where we are now uh in our uh culture we have this category called other and you have this hierarchy of you know people trying to identify themselves but it's always been my experience that you black i mean you got the one drop i mean and that might sound bad i mean bad but that's just how i was taught you know 
Uh, were there any other questions or comments on this? I want to say that, uh, man, I applaud what, how you're raising your child, too. That's, that's very good, young man. That's Young my son. I, I can't <laughs> that. Oh, well. You, oh, that's my right. son. <laughs> I applaud you, too. Um, my, my son went to uh, Burns Middle School because we was living in the county. And I asked my son one day, what do you want to do? What do you want to become? He said, Dad, I want to be president of the United States. He was going to all-white school. I went to all-white school. I knew how I was raised in this all-white school. You know, when you're in a crowd with people, care who you are, you're going to eventually be like those people. Okay? You pick up their habits. You pick up their habits, yeah. you know. And I pick up some habits Man. that I didn't like. And Anyway, I said, son, uh, if you want to be uh, president, because the first president I remember is Eisenhower. And i never forget what Eisenhower said. I want to represent all the people. You but all the people, huh? You getting close to the <laughs> You still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all the people, I said, and I knew we was not included. I was black. I was a black boy. I knew I wasn't included. You know, when he said all the people, we wasn't included. Y'all was included, but we wasn't. You know. Well, speaking so, of on that, you know, topic. How did the 2008 election of President Obama impact you as a black man since you have seen the secession of these different presidents and what it meant? Uh, the first time I voted was when uh, uh, Daddy Bush was in office, and I did vote for Daddy Bush. I'm I did do that, y'all. I liked him. I liked the Barbara Bush pearls. I was very impressed. <laughs> I really did. I really did. Uh, but I am uh, a Democrat. Go ahead. I just want to say something. This is one thing. All blacks are not black. It's true. That's true. Very true. Sure is. Yeah. Well, I, I would ask you to expound upon that, Miss Betty. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's right. Yeah, yeah she's right. Yeah. There was an era, and, and I'm, I'm speaking out there, there was an era when blacks who were black who weren't black. Mm -hmm. There was an era that we lived through where those blacks passed to be something else. Yeah. They did that. In order to survive and have a better life. Right. But that was something that was uh, that was brought onto them by the society that they grew up in. Right. And when they did that, that made it okay. There was a time in the black church, quote unquote black church, where we identified with skin color as much as white people identified. Yeah, and they set them in separate I went to Phil Temple Sandy Church. Wilbur County has it. My grandfather, who was a Baptist preacher, couldn't attend that church. My grandmother went there. She was light skinned. She was light skinned. Yeah, she was light -skinned. My grandfather couldn't. He's dark skinned. He was dark skinned. He had to go to another church. And there was class in African Americans. Yeah. Because we learned that from who? White people. White. Exactly. Yeah. And that carries forward even today. We talk about mixed children, or I guess I'm on mixed out. My father was white, my mother was black. Uh, and, and 
my grandfather, the only reason we got by a lot of times in the place where I live, my grandfather owned a lumber company and probably about everything else in that. <laughs> and we were afforded better conditions mm-hmm. than the other African-American children mm-hmm. that lived in my town. So when we get to the, the point of where we start discussing class, I hate job applications and I hate college entrance exams because the first thing you have to deal with is you have to identify who you are. Yeah. Wonder why that are. is so important. And I heard earlier As you talked about they're going to start a African American uh, uh, is it history class. They have started. They already have. Why is that something that they can elect to do? And why is it not something that we're pushing to make sure that everybody? Does? And I just that make sure you have it in every school system. That's because it takes more. It takes people coming together to make it mandatory. But I want to uh, mention the book. This is the community book read. And I hope that we were able to answer some of your questions about what it's like to be black in in, uh, Owensboro, Kentucky. And uh, we will all be a part of the bigger panel discussion and book read at the end of this month. And I just want to thank Miss Judy and Miss Aloma for inviting uh, me to facilitate this event. And I want to give an applause to all of the panelists. Thank you very much. You can um, get the book right, right, here, right here at the library. You Amazon. can get it at Books A Million. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Kentucky Libraries okay. Unbound. There's just lots of places. On Lisa, your tablet. We have three copies of the book at the information desk on this floor. If you want to take it home, at the information desk right now. Okay. And my daughter downloaded it last night on right. Amazon. The, the other thing is that when you have to interrupt people because they want to keep going, then you're on something. Yeah. You know, I think that I, I think everyone who came, I just want to do one quick commercial for AAUW. <laughs> Our mission is education and equity for women and girls. Men, women, anyone can be a member who, who supports our mission and who is either a full-time student or has an associate degree or higher. Uh, we always run, run a special when we, a discount dues when we do these kinds of events. So you can join for $38. If you're interested at all, pick up a brochure or write your name and your email down and you'll be on my forever preferred list. And you <laughs> said that this is also being podcast. Uh, is there any I, way? I don't know. Lisa, did we get the podcast going? Yes, it's that device up there. Okay. Uh, I can let you know when okay. it's air and then you can let everybody else know. Okay. I, I will. Lisa will let me know how to access it and then I'll let you know. And my husband has videotaped this, so if somebody wants to borrow it, uh, I know we had, we had a specific request uh, from someone who wasn't able to be here tonight to say, please, are you going to record it? So we, as soon as he gets it all onto disc, then it'll be available. Thank you. We have Wait. cookies and ice Hold on, we got one, oh, a couple yeah, more see, comments. It never does end, does it? <laughs> <laughs> we can't shut up. I just felt like it was something that was kind of blaring as far as the black experience in Owensboro and somebody asked about what it would take to get black people, you know, maybe younger professionals to move here. Um, the Confederate statue on our yes. courthouse line that says hello to everybody walking through our <laughs> downtown is not the way to, you know, get there. Or another part of the black experience is just seeing the Confederate flags, like somebody Everywhere. pulling up behind you. Everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Well, I, I, just to, it says, it says you are in the South. 
Yeah. No, well, just I, as, I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm a Yankee. So well, just to speak, to just to speak to that really, really fast. Um, I have had complaints about the Confederate flags flying around, and also the statue. But I want to say, if you infringe upon someone else's right to display that, then sooner or later someone else will want to infringe upon your rights. And as far as the Confederate statue that is on the courthouse line, we cannot run and hide from history, but there has to be a balance. If there's a Confederate statue there, it should be a Union soldier uh, statue there. This was, after all, a border state where we were neutral in the fight. I just think that history has to be depicted accurately. And if it is depicted accurately, then I don't have a problem with it. But if uh, they're just people are just going to be one-sided about it, then I agree. It does need to come down. But I think the effort that went into putting him up, the statue up there for the Confederate, should be uh, just as great of an effort to put a Union soldier uh, statue up there too, so it can reflect both sides because they we fought against one another. That's well, just it, my it view. Of, of true history. True history. And I'm not running from history. I don't think none of us should run from history. And we need to make our own history right now and show what kind of a community we are right now. Mm -hmm. Thank you again.